You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for April 3rd, 2022, the fifth Sunday in Lent. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. So this past Wednesday, we continued our series here at St. Mark's called Let's Talk Race in Good Faith with dinner and conversation around excerpts from the dialogues of the philosophers Cornell West and Robert George. It was a beautiful evening convened around beautiful people, both those who came, uh, those of you who came from St. Mark's and also around Cornell West and Robbie George themselves. Their talks are incredible. They've been giving, they've been having public dialogues across the country at college campuses, all of which, or many of which, I should say, can be found on YouTube. And so it's clips from those YouTube versions that we convened our conversation around on Wednesday. These two are in a spiritual and intellectual tour de force. We ended the evening with a clip in which Brother West and Brother George, or Brother Cornell and Brother Robbie, as they call each other, reflected on how they began the undergraduate great book seminar they co-taught when they were teaching together at Princeton. They told their students, when you come into this class, you come to learn how to die. And their students react with bewilderment, right? They're like, uh, I didn't, that wasn't in the course description, that's not in the bulletin. I thought that I came in here so that I could get a good grade, so I could get this internship this summer, right? I did not come here to learn how to die. As the two of them respond, however, they actually did. In this class, you came to learn how to die so that you'll know how to live. <clears throat> if you're like me, and you're like their students, you may have wanted to make for the door. And you might want to make for the door in a moment. Because I'm sorry to tell you, the reason you come to church is to learn how to die. The tradition of meditating on one's own death has an ancient and venerable heritage in the West. It runs back through the Greeks, Plato and Xenophon, the Roman Cicero and Seneca, all the way up through the 17th century Anglican theologian Jeremy Taylor. Taylor was a chaplain to King Charles I when Charles was beheaded by an act of a Puritan parliament executed then during the English Civil War. He didn't live in a time of peace and prosperity. He did not have a calm life. He was thrown in jail after his boss, as it were, had his head cut off. And then eventually he fled to Wales, where he wrote some of the most loved <coughs> works in English spirituality, including his book, Holy Dying, a copy of which William Faulkner is said to have kept on his bedside table next to a book of common prayer, in which the poet John Keats asked to be read to him as he lay dying in Rome at the age of 26. Shocking, right, that Keats died at 26. It makes me wonder, what in the world have I done with my life, given how much Keats accomplished by the age of 26? How remarkable, too, that what Keats really wanted was to be read Jeremy Taylor. Jeremy Taylor is like the Shakespeare no one has ever heard of. And it's no wonder that people like Faulkner and Keats loved him so much because his prose is 
shockingly beautiful. It is stunning. But it's most importantly a, a work of devotion. So Jeremy Taylor wrote Holy Dying after Charles' death, after his imprisonment, while he's in Wales. He's, been, uh, he, he's had the support of a patron named Lady Carberry. And Lady Carberry died a year before he finished Holy Dying. And so it's addressed to Lady Carberry's husband. It also turns out that Taylor finished Holy Dying six months after his own wife died. And so here's how, here's how he begins the book. Writing to Lady Carberry's husband, both your lordship and myself have lately seen and felt such sorrows of death. No kidding. Death hath come so near to you as to fetch a portion from your very heart. But now you cannot choose but dig your own grave and place your coffin in your eye. I mean, place your coffin in your eye. It sounds like a bad Halloween joke or something, but, but it, Taylor is Taylor's not saying we need to be macabre or anxious. He's, his point really is just that death is certain. Everything in the world dies. Everything. Every bit of it. Including us. And Taylor's recommendation is like that of the Renaissance philosopher Montaigne, who said, we can disarm death of his novelty and strangeness by conversing and becoming familiar with him. For people like Montaigne, people like Taylor, if you want to be less afraid of death, take death to dinner, as it were. Spend some time with death. The more we converse with, the more we become familiar with death, the less ghastly, surprising, shocking, and strange death will seem to us. And that's good for Taylor, because Taylor says death is perfectly ordinary. We think of death as a skeleton jumping out of a closet, or the grim reaper all of a sudden showing up out of nowhere in the night. To be sure, death comes in all shapes and sizes, some of them peaceful, some of them gruesome, most of them somewhere in between. But the fact is death comes over and over and over and over again with the same reliability with which the sun comes up. Death is, Taylor says, the same harmless thing that a poor shepherd suffered yesterday as a maid servant today. And at the same time in which you die, in that very night, a thousand creatures will die with you. And that's true. I mean, have you ever thought about the Disney movie, The Lion King? The whole thing is like an object lesson in that. The circle of life, <laughs> that fabulous song. It's basically exactly what Taylor just said, except turned into a Disney song. <coughs> Death is ordinary, and yet the reason why it has such power over us, the reason why it scares me and so many of us, is that none of us, in fact, know when or how or where we will die. And none of us, in fact, no matter how young or how old, how sick or how well, how fit or how not fit, know when or where or how we will die. We're not all as, we're not all as likely to die at any moment as another, right? And yet, all of us could die at any moment. Now, knowing this, 
ought not to make us stare constantly upward waiting for a shoe to fall. Taylor says it ought to center us in the present moment, which is good, because the present moment is the only one that we ever really have. Taylor mourns, I think more than any other figure in holy dying, those who spend all their lives in their futures. Either in their dreams or in the things they fret about. People who spend their whole life daydreaming about some other time in the future, what they will be, what they will do, etc. Or people who are gripped with anxiety and worry about what will happen, what might happen, what could happen. It's not that we ought not to dream or to plan. It's simply that we ought not to lose today in doing so. We ought not to live in the future. We need to live in the present. Taylor says we must with all arts of the spirit seize upon the present because it passes from us while we speak. We must take our waters as out of a torrent and sudden shower which will quickly cease dropping from above. And then one of the most extraordinary images of, of holy dying, Taylor says that the moments of our all too brief lives are given to us one by one, drop by drop, as though God was dripping them into our history. Drip, 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 drip. And each of those little droplets is all we ever have because the moment each, the moment God drips life into us, it disappears into the cistern of our past, only to be visited by us in memories. Each of those little drips is all that we ever have, one by one by one by one by one. And each drop is a gift. Each drop must not be squandered. It's a gift in which we can discover and learn and wonder and feel and grow. There are opportunities, too, to praise the one who keeps dripping life into the world with such astonishing perseverance and faithfulness and to offer back the life we have received from him. And we will all finally so offer our lives back to him from which we have received them in a definitive and conclusive way. That's what it means to die. Some of us will make this offering over the long haul of old age. Some of us will do so more suddenly. But all of us at the last, in a sublime and radiant instant, laced with eternity and brimming with glory. That Christians die in expectation of eternal life, and we do, doesn't make the end of this one any less final. The good news is that we actually know how to die. It might be surprising to you, but you do. You know how to die. And actually, we practice it a lot. The liturgy is exercise for learning how to die. Death is just one last sacrifice. That's all that it is. <clears throat> one more unclenching of our hands. One more, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. One more offering made with the words which Episcopalians used to say before the Eucharist. All things come of thee, O Lord. 
and of thine own have we given thee. Learning thus how to die can free us really to live. It's quite the opposite of being macabre or anxious. Knowing that you will die, accepting it, making as much peace with it as you can muster, sharpens our sense of what we really care about, because you have no time to waste. You cannot waste any of those drips. It can trim the fat which encases our convictions and our deepest desires. It can keep us from putting off changing our lives when we know we need to, or just when we want to. It can prevent us from squandering opportunities to let people know that we love them. It can strengthen us to give up petty jealousies and resentments. Because what is my grudge against another person given the fact that at any moment I or they could flicker out? It can make us brave in word and deed. It can make others' opinions of us pale and wither in significance. Who cares what other people think if life is really as short as it is? We have no time to waste worrying about others' opinions of us. It can make us urgent to chase down joy where we find it. It can bear us up with the hope of happy ending when we suffer. It's everything that we sum up in saying life's too short, right? And we say that all the time. Life's too short to, etc., etc. That's learning how to die. Everything that comes before and after that phrase. Life's too short. We began Lent on Ash Wednesday by reminding each other that we will die. It's actually, those of you who are able to come to Ash Wednesday in person or online or to come to receive ashes here in the church or at the train station or in some other far-flung part of the world, wherever it is that you might be, if you went to church on Ash Wednesday, you actually signed up. It was in the bulletin. It was in the course description. You came to learn how to die. In fact, you came to be told you're going to die. You were told, as the ashes were imposed on your forehead, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I remember talking to a member of the youth group who came to, uh, who came to the train station before they went to school. And they were saying, I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that you came <laughs> before going to school to receive your ashes. And we had an incredible conversation. And I said, you know, I don't think this day is about being sad. This day is about reminding ourselves that life is precious and we cannot afford to waste it. Now, today, we come to the end of Lent. This is the last Sunday of Lent. This is the last week of Lent. We come to the end of Lent with Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus' body for the death which she and he know is coming, the death whose yearly remembrance we will begin next week on Palm Sunday. The room in which Jesus and his friends have dined is thick with the clouds of death. Mary's brother, Lazarus, Lazarus Jesus' best friend, is... Lazarus is seated at table with them. He's eaten with them. But Lazarus was... Lazarus was dead just a few days before this. So dead, so long, that Mary warned Jesus that there was going to be a stench if they removed the stone in front of the tomb for him to resurrect him. And you have to wonder, did Lazarus still smell? I mean, seriously, did Lazarus still smell that death 
smell when he was sitting there having dinner. Maybe it's no wonder that Mary of Bethany pours out the whole bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet. She was desperate. But in many ways, it's incredibly, it's, it's beautifully appropriate because you, you, you have to think that the, the smell of the perfume, this unbelievably expensive perfume, which would have cost anyone in that room a year's salary or more, how did that smell mix with death's odor as it wafted and drifted throughout the whole house, the author of John says, gradually overcoming and overwhelming death's stench. Because that's what meditating on death is. That's what it does. Accepting that we will die, storing up our hope for eternity, preparing ourselves to give over this life and to gain the next, acquainting ourselves even on earth with the beauty of the God who reigns in heaven, it's like perfume that can fill the house of our souls. And it can put away death's stench. Making death not exactly our friend, not exactly something we're looking forward to, but no longer a stranger to us, nor even our enemy. More a crossing as well as a cross. Mary may have, as Jesus said, bought the costly perfume for the day of Jesus' burial, but she didn't wait until then to use it. <clears throat> and neither should we. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.